0: Good morning. Wasn't the worship band awesome this morning? Yeah, they were good. Uh, not many people know this, but um, I approached Rachel about asking if I could join the worship band, and she promised to get back to me um, as soon as they have a place for a guy that plays kazoos. So I guess maybe I shouldn't get my hopes up too much, should I? All right. Um, We're going to be starting our last series in the book of Ephesians, and this is a very important topic that we're going to be covering this Sunday as well as the next three Sundays. It's called the Armor of God. It's probably one of the best known uh, passages in the entire book, but that's nice. But what's really important is this is like the capstone to what Paul has been telling us about our riches and about our identity in Christ. And unless we pay careful attention to the armor of God, uh, verses 10 through 20 of chapter six, a lot of what we learn we will not be able to apply. Because so often we're not aware of the spiritual battles and conflicts that we're constantly in, all right? And so this passage beginning with what I'm going to cover this morning gives us the tools that we need to really to start being able to grow in our Christian walk. So many of you know I taught history for many years and one thing that history teachers do is we tell stories. Hopefully true stories. So I'm going to start things off and I'm going to invite you to go in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 whether you're using a Bible app or whether you have a printed copy or using the Bible in the pew in front of you. But we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Now, as you're going there, I'm going to tell you a story that was common knowledge to people in Paul's day because this happened about 50 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. So let me go ahead and share this with you. Some 50 years before the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians, in September 9th, excuse me, September 9 AD, 20,000 Roman soldiers were marching through what we would consider modern-day Germany. Supposedly, they were on their way to crush a rebellion. That's what they had been told, it was a trap. They were spread out over some 10 miles deep in what is now called the Teutoburg Forest when suddenly the soldiers were ambushed on both sides. This is called the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, but it was not a battle. It was a massacre. Virtually all of those 20,000-some soldiers died there in a battle that lasted over two or three days. To this day, When people walk through that forest, they still find the remains of the Roman weapons, the remains of their bones, and so on. The Romans were slaughtered in a fight, and the reason why they were slaughtered, and this normally did not happen to Roman soldiers. They were considered the best soldiers in the world at that time. But the reason why they were wiped out is they were totally unprepared to fight. Now, every Christian, whether they know it or not, is engaged in an ongoing spiritual war, even deadlier than what happened to those Roman soldiers almost 2,000 years ago. A war that requires our dependence upon Christ's strength and power if we are to be successful. Now, A guy named John Stott wrote a lot of excellent books. And in his book on Ephesians, as he discussed this passage, here's what he wrote. The whole period between the Lord's two comings, first coming, of course, when he came as a babe, Christmas, second coming is when he returns as the reigning and ruling king. This whole period, which we're in, is characterized by conflict. The peace which God has made through Christ's cross is to experience in the midst of a relentless struggle against evil. Paul knew this. In his last letter, written a few years after Ephesians, 2 Timothy, that the last letter, and he wrote it to his disciple and protege Timothy, here's what Paul told him near the end of that letter. He says i have fought the good fight i have finished the race i have kept the faith at some point for all of us we will finish our race whether it is because the lord calls us home or he returns to take us home as a body of believers. Whoever's living at that time, our race will be over. The question is, did we finish well? Paul finished well. That's what he's telling us in that verse. We will not finish well unless we take very seriously what Paul begins to write here in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Now the main point of this message is this. If I could put it in one sentence, here it is. We must depend upon Christ's power and strength, or we will be overwhelmed. We do not have it within ourselves to win against the forces against us. We will lose. Our victory is only in Jesus, all right? So let's review a little bit in Ephesians since we have not been in that letter for a while. So a quick overview of the letter's contents again. Chapters one to three, which we covered some time ago, that, was, that deals with our spiritual riches and our spiritual identity in Christ, all right? Tremendous chapters, tremendous truths in there. And then... Paul makes a transition beginning in chapter four. And from chapter four to chapter six, verse nine, that's where Paul is describing what it means to live out our new identity in Christ. And his favorite word there is walk. He uses it four times in that section. And then we hit the last section, which we don't want to ignore, and that's what we're starting this Sunday, uh, chapter six, verses 10 to 20, and that's spiritual warfare. That is a constant reality because of our identity in Christ, all right? Now, what we're going to learn specifically this morning is three keys to succeed in spiritual warfare. They're here in these three verses, verses 10 through 12. The first key is dependence upon the Lord. That's verse 10. The next key, first part of verse 11, preparation for battle. One thing we have to do to prepare for this battle, that's what we're going to find out in the second key. And the third key covers the rest of verse 11 and then covers verse 12, and that is recognition of the enemy. Because too often, Christians do not realize who our real enemy is. Now, let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so the first key is in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Or if we wanted to put that in more contemporary English, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, verse 10 is really the summary of all these verses, from verses 10 to 20. The summary is there. That's the main idea. And by the way, when Paul writes to us and tells us to be strong in the Lord, Greek scholars tell us, This is a present passive imperative. That means this. We're not to be strong in our own strength. Because frankly, guys, we don't have any. Our strength comes from the Lord himself. To live out this verse... We have to trust him to give us the strength we need. It's the same thing several centuries earlier when the Jews who had returned to the land of Judah and they were a little struggling group of people trying to get their lives back together and worship the Lord and they were surrounded by enemies. This is after they came back from the exile in Babylon and the Lord spoke through a prophet, the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah 10:12. this is the Lord speaking to his own people. He says this, I will strengthen them, them being the children of Israel. I will strengthen them in the Lord. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'll give you the strength you need. And they will march in his name. This is the Lord's declaration. In other words, this is what you can count on. Now, this command to be strong, there's someone in the Old Testament who was repeatedly told to be strong. Joshua. Joshua, the man whom the Lord appointed to take Israel into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 31, 23, the Lord himself says this to Joshua, this is even before they went into the land, and the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous. For you shall bring this people of Israel into the land I swore to give to them. I will be with you. And if that wasn't enough, the opening chapter of Joshua from verses 6 to 9, three or four times, the Lord says repeatedly to him, Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. In other words, don't rely upon yourself. Rely upon me. Now, when we rely upon ourselves and we're in a tough spot, we'll end up like Peter. Remember Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed? As they were in the upper room and the Lord told Peter and the other disciples, he said, by the way, um, one of you has sold me out. One of you is a traitor. Oh, and by the way, um, all of you are going to run away and leave me alone. Nevertheless, my father is with me. And Peter said, I won't. And the Lord said, oh, yes, you will. And Peter said, he insisted and said, I absolutely will not desert you. And three times that same night, he did. Because the Lord told him, Peter, before that rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Mark chapter 14, verse 72 records that when Peter gave that third denial and he heard the rooster crow, he went out and he wept bitterly. Why did he screw up? Because he relied upon himself. He thought he could do this on his own, big, strong fisherman. I'm not afraid of anything. Oh, yes, you are. By the way, The Lord tells us here to be strong in his power and strength. How much power and strength do we have that we can rely on? How much does the Lord provide for us? Well, if you back up just a few pages to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to actually start reading at verse 16 to catch the context, but I want you to pay special attention, attention to verses 19 and 20. Okay? Because this is going to tell us how much strength is available to us in Jesus. So, start reading at verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope, may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Here we go. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We have... Because we are in Christ, access to the power that the Father used to raise His Son from the dead and then seated Him back with Him at His right hand. You realize that? We don't have a power shortage, ever. because we're in him. We serve an awesome God, don't we? And it's interesting, in Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26, just how powerful is our God, how awesome is our God? Well, beginning at verse 25 of Isaiah 40, there's two questions here the Lord is asking the people of Israel, and he's asking us as well. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. And then Isaiah speaks. He says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Now in Isaiah's time, you know, around 700 BC, all they had was, of course, our natural eyes. And so on a nice clear night, not like our smog and all that kind of stuff that we have, but on a nice clear night... Out in the desert or someplace like that, there's lots and lots of stars out there. There's thousands of them, but that's all they could see. Now we have things like the Hubble Telescope and the Webb Telescope, and we look, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That's the God we have. He's the one that provides us everything we need. That's why we're told to be strong and to get our spiritual strength from him. And you know what? Sometimes, quite frankly, we really need a change of perspective. Um, Over in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 6, I'm going to read to you a few verses here, but 2 Kings chapter 6, what's going on there is the king of Syria has a problem. And the problem is, is every time he wants to get at and do something against the king of Israel, he gets thwarted. All right? It never works. And finally, the king of Syria tells his military leaders, okay, one of you is a rat. One of you is telling the king of Israel what we're going to do. Who is it? Who's the spy? And the guys have to tell him, it's not us. It's that prophet Elisha. He can tell everybody what you're saying in your bedroom. So the king of Syria says, okay, we'll fix this. Send the army out. We're going to grab, kidnap Elisha. So in the middle of the night, out goes the Syrian army. I'm going to start reading at verse 15, 2 Kings chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God, the man of God is Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, This is Elisha speaking, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Servant looks at himself, looks at Elisha, looks out there beyond the wall. And then then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The deal is, we don't normally see that. We don't normally see just how the Lord protects each and every one of us. We're told that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. So right now, even as I'm speaking, there are God's other servants of God here in this room. It's just we can't see him. And you know what? You better be thankful you can't see him. Okay? Because we'd probably all faint dead away if we did. But the point is, God's power is there. It's just a lot of times we get so focused upon our problems and we're concentrating on the wrong thing. So here's an important question. Are you focused upon Jesus' strength and power or on your own troubles? I had a professor in seminary Uh, named Neil Anderson, who since has written a number of excellent books on counseling and spiritual conflicts. And I remember Neil drawing a picture on a chalkboard. Okay, now I know I'm dating myself, chalkboards, all right? But he drew this picture, and he drew a little stick figure about so big, okay? And he said, guys, that's us, this little stick guy. And then he drew two circles. One circle on this side of the stick guy, another circle on this side of the stick guy. And the circle over here, he wrote in the middle of the circle, Satan. And then the circle over here, he wrote God. And he said, so often, what we think of in terms of what's going on in our life, is here we are, little puny us, the little stick guy in the middle, okay? And we're being pulled between these vastly superior spiritual forces. On one side, there's Satan, and the other side, there's God, and we're stuck in the middle. We're being stretched. He said, guys, that's not really how it is. Then he left the circle alone that represented Satan, and he walked over to the other side, and he erased the circle but he left the word God in the middle. And he said, what really is happening is this. Yeah, we're this little stick guy. We don't have any strength on our own. And yeah, Satan's pretty powerful. But there is not a board big enough to hold God. He's off the charts. He's off the scales. And we need to realize that. So that's the reason why the first key is be strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. Now, the next key in spiritual warfare is the opening statement back at uh, chapter six of Ephesians, verse 11, where Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God. Second key. Preparation for battle. Put on the armor of God. And the deal is, Paul had a constant reminder of armor all the time. Because we're told in the last chapter of the book of Acts, when Paul arrived in Rome and he was there for two years, waiting to stand before the emperor or his representative to get his case heard, he was under house arrest. And what that meant for Paul is... He had his own rented house where people could come and visit him and that's where he wrote letters like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. But the whole time, those whole two years, he was constantly chained to a Roman soldier. Now this actually turned out to be a good thing because Paul says in Philippians chapter one, he says, oh, by the way, guys, the whole Imperial Guard knows I'm a prisoner for Jesus. So every time those soldiers would be chained up to him, Paul would start talking to him about the Lord, and they couldn't get away. <laughs> so, when Paul wants to describe armor, all he has to do is look at the guy that he's chained to. But you know what? There's somebody else, far greater, who wore armor. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17. What's described there is God's armor. Here's what it says. He saw, this is the Lord looking, he saw there was no man and wondered there was no one to intercede. In other words, the Lord is looking for somebody to uplift in prayer his people. Somebody to stand in the gap and to beseech God to help his people. There's nobody there. Then, then, His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head and put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus, the divine warrior, who went to fight for us died on the cross for our sins. It looked like it was a defeat that Satan had won. Satan had lost because the grave could not hold him. And Jesus achieved victory through his death on the cross and then his resurrection. And his sacrifice provided salvation for us. His blood purchased our redemption. That's the reason why Paul wrote to the Colossians. He wrote this. He, that's God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. By the way, that's a one-time deal. It's forever settled. It's never going to go back transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When Paul says, put on the armor of God, whose armor are we wearing, guys? Have you ever thought about that? We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our righteousness, we're told in Isaiah 64, 6, is filthy rags, it's worthless. That's why we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And by the way, the phrase armor of God, it's it's a metaphor, okay? It's a metaphor, it's a metaphor though that we really need to capture the meaning of if we're gonna practice this. It pictures two things, this armor of God. That's something that we're putting on. The first thing that it's picturing is actually something that Paul referred to back in Ephesians chapter four, verse 24, where there's another place where Paul tells us, again, same phrase, to put on something. And Ephesians 4, 24, it says there, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness of holiness. Put on the new self means wear our new spiritual identity. And he writes earlier there, he says, okay, have nothing to do with that old man, that old self. That's buried. Don't go back there. Instead, live out your new identity in Christ. Live out the fact that you are now a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the first picture. The armor of God represents our new identity in Christ. It represents something else, though. It represents also the ongoing, life-transforming presence of Jesus himself within us. So Romans 13, verses 12 and 14, it says this, the night has far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, uh, when I was a kid, There was a TV show, and it didn't last very long, but I liked it. It was called The Greatest American Hero. And, oh, somebody said, yeah, so somebody else has seen this show. (laughs) The show was briefly about this guy. He's just an ordinary guy, okay, nothing special, just kind of Mr. Average. And anyway, he has this meeting with these aliens, and these aliens decide, hey, we're going to take pity on you and upon the people of this lowly little planet. We're going to give you this costume, all right? And when you wear this, you're going to be able to do all kinds of amazing things. So the average guy, he takes the costume, and, okay, yeah, this is cool. It's kind of got a little, you know, firebolt or something. It's got a cape. Yeah, this is nice. And then he's walking away, and as he's walking away, he doesn't notice, but what falls to the ground, and he f- leaves it there because he didn't see it, is the book of instructions. So yeah, he's got the costume, but does he know how to use it? No. So yeah, he can fly, sort of like you take a wad of paper and throw it against a wall. That flies. Okay, that's about how this guy flies. Nothing works. Okay? Okay. you see where i'm going with this? We have God's armor. We have everything we need to succeed in our walk with the Lord. The question is, are we going to access what he's provided for us? That's the prep. That's what we're called to do. Okay? So another question, have you prepared For the crises and the troubles that are coming. Because they're coming. I think it was Eliphaz that said in the Old Testament, one of Job's friends, okay, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Yeah, that's true. Eliphaz at least got that right. And the reason why we go through troubles and trials is because that's part of the process that the Lord uses to strengthen and to refine us and to make us more like Jesus. There is no other way. So are we prepared for the crises and troubles that are coming? The only way we'll be ready is if we put on the armor of God. That's it. Now there's a third key. And the third key And when it comes to spiritual warfare is recognition of the enemy. So let's read the rest of verse 11 and then into verse 12. So let me just start again at the beginning of verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Actually, underline that word stand in my Bible. You might want to do the same. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, anybody who's been in the military or who has friends or family who is either in the military or who have served are familiar with the phrase, friendly fire. It's a real misnomer. Because friendly fire sadly kills people in the military every year. And friendly fire, for those of you who don't know it, is when you get killed or you get shot by your own military. Okay? There's a firefight that happens, everybody's shooting everywhere, and then somebody that's supposed to be on your side shoots you by accident. That's friendly fire. Christians are very good... At shooting the wrong enemy. We get so caught up, maybe at that person at work that attacks us for our faith, that family member that drives us bonkers every time we have to see them at a family gathering, or whatever it is, we get focused upon someone that we can see, not realizing, as Paul is telling us here, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. There's a whole host of enemies against us that we will never see. That's our real enemy. So the question is, how are we supposed to fight somebody we can't even see? By the way, the Ephesian Christians knew this very, very well. Because if you read in Acts chapter 19, when Paul arrived at Ephesus and he spent about two years there, discipling and preaching the gospel and starting churches, there was some real spiritual conflicts in Ephesus. For one, we're told in Acts 19 that there were these seven clowns, uh, they weren't really clowns, but you get the idea, these seven guys who thought, okay, we can can cast out demons. We'll just use the name of Jesus because there seems to be power in Jesus' name. So they approach this demonized guy, go to his house, and they tell this guy, okay, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we're casting you out. And the demon says, uh. Actually, what he said was, I know Jesus, and Paul I've heard about, but who are you? Gets up, beats up all seven of these guys till they run out of the house naked and bleeding. Now that got everybody's attention in Ephesus, realizing the name of Jesus is nothing to mess with. And so Luke tells us that the people who had come to the Lord still were hanging on to a lot of their old magical books and occultic practices, even though they knew they should have given that stuff up. So what did they do? They gathered all that up and they had a huge bonfire and burned up all of these books because Ephesus was a real center, sadly, of witchcraft and paganism and the occult. Burned up all of these books, all of these treasures, supposedly, that they treasured. It amounted up to 50,000 silver pieces in value. Gone up in smoke. But the people didn't care. Because they recognized who their real enemy was. Our real enemy is Satan. Some quick facts about Satan. First of all, he's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a destroyer. That's terminology that Jesus himself used to describe the devil. He said he's a liar, and when he speaks lies, he's speaking his native language because he's the father of lies. Next, he deceives and disguises himself. He's not gonna come out and say, oh yeah, I'm the devil, by the way. No, Paul says he dresses like an angel of light. And we're told in Revelation he deceives the entire world. Also, another important fact, he was defeated by Christ and he will be condemned. According to Colossians 2.15, Christ emerged victorious over Satan. The best Satan can do now is fight a delaying action. He knows where he's going. And according to Revelation, his he will spend eternity in a place called the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Now, when Paul tells us here, he says, you want to be wary of the schemes of the devil. Some of our Bibles might say the wiles of the devil. It's actually where we get our English word methods from that Greek word, all right? The point is, it's the plural. Meaning that Satan doesn't use the same thing every time to trip us up. He's got more than one plan. He's not a one-trick pony. And some of the examples of sins that Satan uses to trip up people, how about lingering anger? You know, in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul there writes, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't hold on to it, because if we do that, we're giving a place for the devil. Literally, we're giving him a foothold in our lives. So if you have anger and you haven't dealt with it, you better deal with it and take it to the Lord and keep taking it to the Lord. Otherwise, you're just inviting Satan in. Another way he attacks is through false teachers and false doctrine. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, oh, by the way, these false apostles, he calls them counterfeits, who are trying to seduce you away from the foundation you have in Christ. He says, these guys are really bad news. And then later Paul writes to the Galatians who are being tripped up by a false gospel thinking that somehow they can earn their way to heaven rather than trust solely upon the grace of Christ. Paul tells them in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 to 9, if anybody anyone tells you a gospel other than what you have heard, let them be accursed. Literally, let them go to hell. And finally, second or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, Paul tells Timothy there and us that in the last days and we are in the last days, there will be people that will pay attention to doctrines of demons. They don't want to hear the truth. They like the lies. Another example of a sin that Satan uses is greed. That's what he used against Judas. Judas Iscariot sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Didn't do him any good when he tried to return the money out of remorse, they refused to take it so he went out and hung himself. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 9 to 10 tells us there that the love of money, not money itself but the love of money is the root of all evil. I told this to First Service. They forgave me, so I'm going to tell it to you guys as well. I did something I should not have done this last week, something I have not done in years. I bought a lottery ticket. (laughs) And you know what? When they drew the number, and I looked at that stupid ticket, I didn't get one number right. Not one! That's for toto luck for you, right there. <laughs> I wadded it up, threw it away. Our kitten found it. she's bopping it around, and I thought, well, at least somebody's enjoying it anyway. <laughs> so greed definitely can trip us up. And finally, the last one: misplaced confidence. That was what got Peter and the other disciples. They thought they were fine. They thought they weren't gonna betray Jesus. They were not gonna run. Well, they ran when he was arrested, and of course, Peter did indeed betray him. Now, the deal is, guys, you know, so oftentimes, some idea or action seems okay at the time. It's later when we realized We've been snookered. Well, we wanted to be snookered, but we've been snookered, okay? We messed up. I like what this one guy wrote on this passage. Uh, He wrote this Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. So, another important question. How can we win? How can we overcome this adversary that is so much stronger than us? How? Well, Paul tells us two things to do here, okay? First thing that we need to do to overcome our adversary is to stand our ground did you catch that you may be able to stand not charge you're like you know okay we're going to charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun no okay stand you know roman soldiers when they were attacked they would interlock their shields together and they would huddle behind those shields and it was virtually an impenetrable wall, okay? Because they would stand together like that. And my point is this, in order for us to stand, we need a community. You know, coming back to the opening story that I told you about what happened to those 20,000 soldiers in the Tutenberg Forest, I'm sure there were soldiers in that 20,000 who did what they were trained. They stood, huddled behind their shield. Okay, I'm still, okay. The problem is nobody else is standing around them, okay? Okay, he's doing what he needs to do, but he doesn't see the German guy coming behind him with a mace. You know, it's over. We need a community to pull this off, Okay? Listen to what Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians, a group of people that frankly dearly loved the apostle Paul, their missionary, but didn't really love each other very much. So here's what he wrote to them. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's community. That's what we, why we keep getting after, you guys, as a body. We need each other. This is why we get after everybody about getting into groups. We need each other. Stand your ground. And secondly, resist. It's interesting, he says, we do not wrestle. You think Paul, since he likes you know, this military metaphor, he would talk about fight, we do not fight? No, he says wrestle. You know, wrestling's kind of a, of course, some of you guys, I'm sure, have done wrestling. I was always the victim when it comes to wrestling, Okay. I uh, had a good friend that his dad was a wrestling coach at Shafter High, and so Bill learned all of the latest moves, and he'd like to practice on his dummy, okay? And that's kind of what happened until I got bigger. So anyway, wrestle. Wrestling's kind of an up-close-and-personal sport, isn't it? I mean, you're kind of doing this thing, and you know you can smell the other person's armpit as you're trying to wrestle with them, all right? The point is, is that we have to resist, and it's a contact type of thing, all right? It's interesting, in James chapter 4, verse 7, James wrote this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, there's something here I don't think I ever really caught before. I caught the idea very clearly. Okay, I'm supposed to resist and then the devil will flee. I got that, Lord. But the first part I didn't catch until I started working on this message this last week. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. When we're going through hard times and troubles, whatever it is, we need to recognize that those hard times and troubles often are coming from God Him. Self. Not because he doesn't love us. He loves us. But because that's the only way he can grow and develop us is if we learn to depend upon him. That's the furnace that he takes us through to make us more like his son. So we submit to God. And as we're submitting to God, and Satan's doing this, we resist, we stand our ground, and then Satan runs. Now we have an example of this in the life of the Lord Jesus himself. We all know the story about Jesus being out in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. Three different temptations All of which would have sabotaged the mission that the Father had sent him to do, to basically purchase our redemption. But what we gotta realize, Jesus was out there in the wilderness because the Holy Spirit had sent him out there. He submitted to the Holy Spirit. He went out into the wilderness where he was fasting and then where Satan came along and tempted him, and we all know, Jesus resisted, and by the way, he resisted using this. now he didn 't actually pack a Bible out there. you know what I mean? He had it in his heart. He used passages from Deuteronomy when Israel was out in the wilderness, and Israel, of course, screwed up, but jesus didn 't screw up. By the way, if you haven 't memorized, for example 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you need to. No temptation has seized you such as come to man, but with the temptation, God will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or be able to escape it. He submitted to his father's plan. He was tested. He resisted, and the devil ran. Remember, Jesus is the author and captain, the originator of our salvation. He's our example. So if he went through something like that, do you think we're going to get off scot-free? No. This is part of the process of spiritual conflict, of spiritual warfare. So, as we wrap up our time together in the word. I have two final questions and then Nate is going to come out and play for us a final song and we're going to have a time for folks to come forward for prayer. Anybody who wants it. So two final questions as we wrap up our message. First question is this. Who are you depending upon? Jesus or your own strength? If we're depending upon our own strength. We know the result of that. It's going to be failure. If we're depending upon Jesus, truly depending upon Him, we have all the power we need to stand up for Him. Second question, related to the first who are you trusting in? We discover this as we're going through a trial or a problem who are you trusting in jesus or yourself again two very different results if we're trusting in ourselves as opposed to trusting jesus so as i mentioned earlier we're going to have a time of prayer so we'll have our church leaders down here at the front if anybody wants to come forward for prayer whether regarding things in the message or something else you come forward let's do some spiritual warfare come along we want to come alongside and help people so you come forward as the lord leads